Welcome to Larry Reedy's America. Uh, this is our fourth segment of a veteran's audio journal. And today's guest is Fred Hellman. Uh, Fred is a Vietnam vet. Uh, he has also written and published a book called Never Give Up. And it is a Vietnam veteran's memoir. And uh, it's Fred Hellman in the 2nd Battalion, 3rd Marine Division. So anyway, Fred, welcome to my podcast. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a real pleasure to uh, be asked uh, to uh, be here. I, I appreciate this a lot. Okay, well, Fred, Fred and I have just spoken on the phone once, and we just met today. So uh, some of the other podcasts, as everyone knows, uh, they've been on before. So we're going to go back to the kind of the beginning. And uh, uh, Fred, where were you born? Where did you go to grade school? Where did you go to high school? Yeah, I was born in Covington, Kentucky, in uh, 1943. Oh, fellow Briar. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, I went to St. Henry's grade school up in Erlanger, and then after grade school, I went to Covington Catholic, okay. um, where I was. Um, I was on a swim team there for for about one week uh, because I quit, and I quit because God, I was oh so far out of shape. Uh, I was too embarrassed. I mean, I was embarrassing that when I swam the races, I always come down last. But that only lasted until my dad asked me one night at the supper table. He said, Fred, uh, how are how you doing in swimming? I said, Dad, I quit. He said, you quit. You don't quit. Get back on that team. Don't be a quitter. I said, all right, I'll get back on. I'll swim. I probably won't do that very good. So uh, as each year went by, the sophomore, the junior, and then came along the senior year. This is where the real clincher of something that happened that changed my life and gave me the attitude of never give up. And that's this. My coach had me switch from swimming uh, freestyle to, to swim backstroke. He said, I want you to go and swim backstroke. He, I said, I said, I don't even know how to swim backstroke. He said, get in or try it anyway. I said, all right, I'll try it. Well, it turned out that I had the knack for swimming backstroke and uh, to the point where when we went to the state championship swimming meet in Lexington, Kentucky, I ended up setting the state record in the 100-yard backstroke, which I held for two years. And when that happened, it clicked with me that you know what? A lot of us don't even know what we, what kind of ability and talent that we have until you accidentally just fall into it or someone makes you do something that you didn't think you could do. And because of that, that set the tone for me on the rest of my life. So after I got out of, um, after that, I went to two years of um, college uh, down at Lexington. And then my money ran out. And when my money ran out, that's when I got <laughs> that letter from the government saying, uh, you're going to be drafted into the Army in 48 hours. And I said, 48 hours? I said, well, what if I don't want to? So I called him. I said, well, what if I don't want to go in the Army? And he said, well, you got 48 hours to sign up in something else. So that's what I did. I went down to Covington to the Marine Corps uh, recruiting uh, station or office, and I signed up there. 
And the reason why I picked them, um, I always remember the um, the reputation of some of their slogans. One is first to fight. And the other one was um, their reputation of their drill instructors being very, very tough. And that's what I, and I, uh, since my childhood days, I was always, a, I was always getting in trouble, getting in fights and doing daring things and all this other stuff. So I wanted to find out how tough are these drill instructors? Well, I found out and you know what? It was the best thing that could have happened to me because what they do, they start everybody on that first day when you arrive at boot camp, everybody gets shaved and everybody starts off looking exactly the same. Uh, you don't know where they're from. It's all immaterial, who, where they are, what religion, and all this other stuff. But the drill instructors start everybody on the same level, and they end up making a man out of you. They push you beyond the, the physical capabilities that you think you could go or you can't go. Well, what and, and, what uh, what base did you go to? Oh, oh yeah, I went to San Diego. I you had my choice Diego, of either... Okay. Yeah, I could either went to Paris Island or to uh, you know San Diego. Good choice. And, right. <laughs> well, the one reason why I picked that, uh, I heard about Paris Island being really rough, but I, I knew both boot camps. There's no swamps in San Diego. Right. No, no, but they got some hot area like um, desert area, especially yeah. up in up in Camp Pendleton, uh, which is a little bit north of there. But uh, the one reason why I picked San Diego is because I thought this is an opportunity in my life to get away from my family and all my friends and just see how I can make it on my own. Mm -hmm. So it was a good, it was a good experience for the, for me to, to do that. So what year did you join? Oh yeah. I, I joined in 1966 in the, in the spring. I signed up, uh, well actually I signed up in 65 in November of 65. And, um, uh, they give you a three month a pre, uh, pre, uh, um, what do you call it? Uh, uh, joining the uh, the armed forces mm -hmm. before you have to go in actively. So that's why I, in November and December and then January and then February, I, that's when I... Uh, yeah, well, I think they call, call that deferred enlistment. Then, then. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's it, yeah. deferred enlistment. And um, so, all right, so at least I got me on throughout the holidays and I had a good way to start the year off with a, a whole new frame of mind, a whole new life. And um, anyway, I, I you know... Um, I got out of, of their their basic training and then their advanced training, um, where I had at Camp Pendleton. That's where you go and you learn to, to operate all the all the all the uh, guns. You know, like I was in mortars, um, machine guns, the uh, the, the one hundred five. Uh, uh, so your MOS was infantry, right? Yeah, yeah. I started off as a grunt, O three eleven, and but when I uh, was when I went to uh, Vietnam, which was, I arrived in Vietnam um, in August of 1966, uh, August 15th. And the day I arrived there, they needed men in, in the mortar unit because mm -hmm. some of them were either being transferred out or maybe some were being wounded or killed or whatever. So they put me in mortars, you know, I didn't have any other choice. I, you just, that's where you learn how to follow orders. You never say no, you just do what you're told. And, um, so I was in mortars and uh, but when I was over there in the first couple months, uh, it wasn't that bad. It was kind of quiet and all this stuff. We, we, I was I was located way out on the outskirts 
of any kind of town or, you know, it was actually, I arrived in the, uh, the Da Nang Air, airport and, um, that day I arrived there, that's when they uh, put me on a truck and they took me about 20 miles south west of, uh, Da Nang. Uh, and, um, and they put, I went to a unit, um, which was the second battalion, third Marines, um, um, they um, started me off by putting me in golf company, which was located right at the base of a, of a mountain in the jungle, and that's where we were. We our unit was right at the base of, of the uh, of the mountainous area, coming down into the rice paddies and everything. And um, our our unit was in charge of patrolling these areas about ten to fifteen miles out in a radius around the whole area, and just keep. You know, looking for the Viet Cong or, or, or um, signs of the North Vietnamese coming out of the mountains. And so that's what our job was in the beginning there. But then things... Did started. you have spotters that were with, with long-range telescopes or binoculars yes. looking at the mountains? Yes. Oh, we had a large um, scope. I'm going to show you right here. Let's see if I got it right here in the beginning. Yeah, here it is. Yeah, this guy, this was a lieutenant, and he was in charge of artillery, and he would he looked through this scope, which is a twenty-part scope that they got off of a ship, and we were able to scan and look at all these uh, little trails in the, in the rice paddy dikes where the goods would cross over, uh, and all that. So he he could spot them five, ten miles out, and then call in artillery in, in on them. Uh, so, but that naval part scope really, really helped. But so, um, yeah, it's interesting because because I was going to say when you if if you're got jungle between you and the mountains, uh, I imagine the foliage and everything. If they come down at night and get in that jungle, you're not going to pick them up until it's too late. I know. You know, it's incredible in this day and age uh, in the modern era. Uh, because uh, they can detect heat yeah. and they can spot them coming through the jungles. You can't see them all, but you can see that heat. Boy, what? <laughs> I wish we had that when I was there over there, but we didn't. So yeah, they, you're yeah. right. Well, they hit infrared, but that doesn't do anything. Oh, well, you it, can't see <laughs> in yeah. through the foliage. Yeah, right. right. You, you can't see through it. Uh, yeah, well, matter of fact, uh, some of the snipers, uh, they had uh, infrared, I believe, yeah. on their scopes where they could. But the average uh, rifleman, we, we didn't have anything like that. We just just a normal uh, right. M14. Uh, which we were given, and then, um, as a matter of fact, when I would go out on these patrols and carrying mortars on my back, and that, I was we always had a rifle with us, you know, weapon uh, in case uh, we got hit real close by an ambush or something, and didn't have time to sit up or mortar. Well, uh, when you were carrying the mortar, was somebody else carrying the shells? Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, okay. And, and each um, for each gun, eighty-one millimeter mortar gun, this thing right there. Yeah. Um, uh, we have a, a bipod the, right. where the tube sits on. That's that's one and that, that 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 marine's called a gunner. And then the A gunner is the one who carries the long tube, which slides and attaches to that. Yeah. And um, so he carries that. And then we have four ammo carriers. And yeah. each ammo carrier carries three rounds. Yeah. Now we we carry three different types of uh, of ordnance. 
One is the HE, which is the high explosive. And what's the way? The other, the other one is the Willie Peter WP. That's a, nothing but a firebomb. Great for burning out, uh, you know, yeah. like the uh, like the Grace Shacks or the, uh, or, the Grace or, Huts or Viet Cong. Or, or, right, <laughs> right. And then the last one is a is the illumination round, um, and that's where uh, you know, of course, that's really important. Um, what do they weigh? About thirty pounds a piece. Yeah. Well, the, about uh, no, uh, it's uh, more like about about fifteen pounds. It's only fifteen. Yeah. Yeah, they about fifteen. So when you carry three, three of those things there, you know, you're yeah. carrying you're carrying Plus almost fifty. Plus you got a backpack. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, oh yeah, you got all that stuff you're carrying. Uh, yeah. You know, the canteens and the cartridge belt and that flat jacket, yeah. all that stuff adds up to about maybe close to about maybe I guess eighty pounds. Yeah, you know, with a rifle and everything, helmet, and um, but when um, when I was wounded, I was carrying a radio on my back, and uh, that weighs about twenty twenty some pounds. Yeah. Uh, Actually, the radio probably probably protected. Well, it did protect me. <laughs> I'd, I'd love to see what the radios are like today with the, you know, everything is, you know, like the little iPhones years ago, just giant bag phones. And I, I imagine the radios have changed quite a bit today. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. I mean, they have. Matter of fact, the same thing with the water, like in, like canteens. They don't carry canteens. They have these little things, uh, uh, bags, bags, like, and they, they got a little uh, tube, a little yeah. rubber hose or something <laughs> like that to suck, <laughs> yeah. which is, you know, good. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, you know, that's whole idea is about making things easier for yeah. us and uh, more mobile and all that other stuff. So, uh, but yeah, it's um, well. What the real clincher was, actually, the first year that I got there, I mean, the first month I got there, our unit was actually uh, called in to go to the top of the first mountaintop because of a recon team was surrounded by the NVA, and they were calling in for help. Oh, really? For, for help. On top of a mountain? Uh, so or top, was under, so or do you want at the top of the mountain to lob shells, or that's where the action was at the top of the mountain? Yes, it was at the top, uh, and actually what what was discovered there, couldn't believe what, what they found up there uh, when they went up there to... Uh, to uh, rescue the recon team they flew us in on helicopters uh right well it's kind of hard to find a level spot up there where there's not you know trees but there's a lot of it's it's intermittent of uh the elephant grass uh the rubber trees the bamboos and all that other stuff uh so but anyway we were able to get off the chopper and uh, when they got there uh they actually detected underneath this huge canopy jungle it was almost like an area like the size of this area right here that we're sitting in, um, in your studio here. And they had logs in, in rows. And what they were using for the logs is that's where the uh, the gooks or the North Vietnamese would sit. And they would train them how to uh, operate a... Um, how to operate a... Um, a 105 howitzer. Yeah, that's a big now, now, now here's, now here, this is the This is our colonel. That's a picture of the colonel. And he's showing everything here is made out of wood. And when they went into this canopy and saw this training thing, the training area, they were teaching the North Vietnamese how to, when they were going to overrun us because we were, I was right next to an, an artillery battery. And a battery consists of five guns. 
Um, and uh, so their intention was to overrun us and then get the artillery and know how to use it so they can use it uh, right on top of us. Yeah. Uh, it was their backup. And this is another smart thing. Uh, God, I hate to, I shouldn't say I hate to give compliments, but the fact of it is, and I don't hate giving a compliment, it's just a fact of, of life, and that's this. R81 mortar, 81 millimeter, and that's the the size of the opening. Mm-hmm. Well, they had an 82 millimeter mortar, one meter wider, and the benefit of that was this. Our rounds... Um, Our rounds could go down into their tube, but if we overran them and we got their 82 millimeter mortar, their mortar wouldn't fit down in our tube. Mm. So that was really smart that they made their tube one millimeter wider for the benefit that um, we could we could use theirs. I mean, we, uh, they could use ours in their tube to slide down, but our rounds would not slide down in, in theirs. Well, you know, and uh, one millimeter is not going to affect the accuracy. Either. Oh no! Oh no! So Absolutely, yeah. no, yeah. not at all. What What was the range of the? Uh, Usually, it's around uh, about four hundred meters. Uh, I'll say close to maybe, well, maybe a mile, quarter of a mile, something like that. Um, for the mortars, now the the one hundred fives, they they could go out to about ten ten miles, out and maybe even further. But the benefit of the mortar was this, and that's this. Those a mortar would go straight up in the air, and you know make a big arch, and then just drop down. On uh, the benefit was 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 to get the mortar over a mountaintop and hit on the backside of that mountain, where, where the enemy usually was. They, they they always positioned themselves on the backside of the hill. Now the 105s, you know the one I was talking about before. They they didn't have that capability going straight up and coming down. They would only just they would go right over the top of the ridge. No way they could uh, hit those gooks right on the other side of the hill. That's where the eighty one mortar was uh, very important, very useful for for that. And your howitzer, what kind of range did that have? The howitzer, well, the the one hundred five that had um oh man, I'm guessing at this. Uh, I, I mean, I mentioned it before. I think it was about maybe five miles, eight miles. But then they had the bigger one. It was the 175 howitzer. This is the one that would go about 20 miles. Oh. And, uh, <laughs> or something like that. Now, wow. now, look, again, I'm I'm guessing at yeah. that because I, I didn't operate those yeah. those other two. I only operated the mortar. And um, But I got to the point where when I was in mortars, sitting on a hill all the time waiting for a fire mission, I actually got bored, and I volunteered to go out on on the patrols with the with the units going mm-hmm. around and you know, spend a night out on the ridge line or or at the base of the mountain, or right next to a rice paddy uh, a dike or uh, you know the little dams they got. Um, and uh, anyway, uh, so I went out there just to just to get off the hill to do something. I don't know. I think I was <laughs> I was gun ho. I got to admit I was gun ho because I. I didn't mind. I didn't have. I didn't have any fear about fighting or shooting or getting shot at until, of course, then that moment of truth comes where they call it the baptism of fire, mm-hmm. and that's the first time when you actually get shot at and you hear a bullet 
wizard by your head. Yeah. All right, all right. Seeing the dirt splash, you know, uh, get torn up right in front of you, or the bark on a tree getting uh, knocked off by a bullet. Uh, when that happens, then uh, <laughs> you realize that this is no, this is no game. This is real. And you learn to keep your dagger and head down low, uh, and that's a polite way of saying it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, uh, so I, the month of. Um, Besides that um, operation I just talked to you about where we uh, uncovered it, the, uh, the classroom up on the top of this mountain where they were training the, um, the soldiers, the North Vietnamese, how to operate a 105 howitzer. Uh, after that, there wasn't too much going on down there except, well, there was another operation uh, went on where, um, so, I won't say surprisingly, but this is something that happens a lot. The North Vietnamese know who the leaders are just by watching them from a distance and who's ever on the phone, <laughs> that's probably the leader of that unit, mm -hmm. which is usually sometimes an officer. Well, one of the battles I was in, the first two Marines that were killed were both officers. They were yeah. on the phone, and then they and then they tried to get the uh, the radio operator. Um, so, um, but that's... <laughs> That's why you don't. You, when you go out there, you don't wear you any don't of your wear emblems, yeah. Yeah. especially the silver one. I mean, they're going to reflect everything. So yeah. you, you try to go that go out there with the least amount of reflection of anything. Right. Um, but um, those those first three months of um, September, October, and November wasn't that bad. But then they moved us up to the border of North and South Vietnam, and we landed at a base called Dong Ha. I mean, that, that was the base, the airstrip there. And then when we got there, then they moved us out going west on the way to Laos. Um, and um, uh, the first place was, well, one was called Cam Lo. That was an artillery uh, battery area. And then beyond there was Camp Carroll. That was another artillery battery base five miles further west. And then there was a place called the Rock Pal. And I got pictures of the rock pile. And, and beyond the rock pile was a very noted place. And it was right at the corner of North, of, of, right at the corner of South Vietnam, bordering Laos. And that was called Quezon. Quezon. Mm -hmm. A lot of people have heard of the Quezon, um, um, the siege of Quezon back in 1968, of January 1968. But my unit, we were in, a, in the first battle at Quezon. It's called the First Battle of Quezon. And this was in, in uh, April of 1967, April 1967, when my unit uh, arrived there. Actually, we were rushed up to this area because two battalions were getting beaten off of these mountaintops, which were honeycombed with hundreds of these... Uh, little uh, uh, tunnels and uh, caves and bunkers all over the place. And they were so well camouflaged, you couldn't you could already see them until you actually walked up on them. They couldn't usually be seen by air, by the spotter planes. We had these little small, like, Piper Cubs, mm -hmm. you know, just a single prop thing flying around. Just, you know, they, they helped out a lot by spotting the enemy. Of course, it's kind of hard to see them uh, most of the time because they're very well camouflaged. They, put a lot of vegetation on their backs and their helmets, you know. But not only that, but they're smart about how they move through the uh, jungle. They don't, they're not going to cross a rice paddy dike. 
they're they're going to take the long way around right next to the tree line uh where the body where they're where they're where they're not being where they couldn't be seen that, that easily but this is the point i want to make was um one of the biggest battle my unit was in was that up at Quezon, and when we arrived there in um april april 26 i'll never forget that scene when the uh, actually, we went on, up there on a C-130 plane. Um, these are those uh, planes that they don't have, they don't need much of a, a of a runway to land on or to take off. They're very you know it's just mm -hmm. ideal for for these small little airstrips. Uh, a jet couldn't land on it because it would just crash. Yeah. yeah. But but anyway, we we they flew us up on this this plane, and just as we got off, the first thing we saw were these Marines coming off the hill. Bringing, bringing their dead down and 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 the uh, and the um, ponchos, uh, you know that's a that's a cover you carry. I mean, you, you use when you're to, to try to keep dry, but they're also used to as a um, uh, like a body bag. Anyway, that's what I saw when I getting off this hill. All these Marines, and I thought, my God, is it really bad? Up there? I mean, I could tell that it looks obviously what you see, but then they. I'll never forget that one Marine stopped right next to me as they were passing us. And the whole unit stopped. And I looked at the guy and he had that look of shock in his eyes. And I asked him, I said, I said, what's it like up there? He says, it's hell. They're, sh they're killing everybody. Keep your head down. They're, 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 they're shooting everything up. I thought, Jesus, and I'm going up there. Well, yeah. that was our job. Our job was to take over these three hills. Uh, they named them by the uh, the elevation level, and one was Hill Eight Sixty One, and the other two were two peaks, twin peaks. They were Eight Eighty One South and Eight Eighty One North. And our battalion, the Second Battalion, Third Marines, our job was to relieve these other units that were coming off the hill. They were getting beaten really bad uh, a lot of a lot of a lot of a lot of death and uh god what i well anyway there's so much to talk about for those next 15 days that i was up in that hill or up in those hills here seeing what i saw didn't you get any relief in 15 days did you know oh yeah well yes after 15 days we actually beat the north vietnamese off of the hills but it wasn't until we literally saturated the tops by bombing them with with the uh, with the Phantom Jets, the Skyhawks, the Crusaders, Were they the, uh, the F-100s, and, 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 and sundry bombs. Oh yeah, no, right. I just gotta say, first first they dropped the high explosives. First they were dropping like five hundred pound bombs. Okay. But then they could still see the bunkers. So then they brought in one thousand pound bombs and two thousand pound bombs with with a delayed fuse, whereas when it would hit the ground, it wouldn't it wouldn't go off that that instant. It would allow the the bomb to go about maybe three deep, you know, three feet deep, and then explode. Mm -hmm. So it was ideal for blowing these bunkers to bits. So when I when we first started approaching these this mountain, I could see trees on the top, a lot of elephant grass. But when we got to the top, after two days of bombing, it was nothing but a bare brown mud hill. And as I'm as I'm going up, I remember seeing, I'll never forget this one time, I saw a hand laying on the trail, you know, just a hand, a body part and that. And it's it was understandable because when those things hit, there's nothing left of a body. All you find is um, 
shredded flesh in a tree limb or some uh, clothing there and here and everything. Um, so <laughs> you get up there and um, you realize what what the bombs can do. But then the, the uh, North Vietnamese, they were smart. They, they had these tunnel complexes and you had to, well, you had to almost bomb out every one of them. It's sort of like right now in this day and age uh, over in Israel where they're talking about those these tunnels where they're um, the um, the what do you call it the Gaza what is that called over there the Gaza, Gaza Strip or whatever Gaza it is. Uh, well, anyway, well, anyway, up there and uh, where I was at on, on these hills in, at Kason, that's where they had these tunnel complexes, and you know they go from here to this whole distance uh, being under under a tunnel. Uh, but anyway, that's how so we couldn't bomb them all out. So uh, that's where the infantry comes in. You go in and you get the, the hand-to-hand type of combat. Yeah. They're shooting at close range. We would throw in the C one, uh, uh, the C four, which is um, which is that it's a real pliable, uh, mushy. Uh, it's almost like putty. Right. And then you put a little uh, firing capsule in it, and uh, you, you throw that whole thing in there, and that, it's amazing. You know that just blows everything to bits. Uh, uh, but that's how we were able. But we had to get up close to these holes to throw that stuff in. Of course, when you're approaching it, you're getting shot at. So uh, you really got me. Well, you, well, you, the way you do it is you, you you throw out a lot of firepower where the firing's coming from yeah. to keep their head down while the firing's going on. Other guys are crawling up closer to it uh, with either the hand grenades or the C-130 so they could get close enough to throw the stuff in their holes and then blow them up. Yeah. Uh, well, and they, didn't they have, I'm sure, they had tunnel rats that... Oh, yeah. That's an earth, that tunnel rat. Yeah, they would oh, They would actually go... Because yeah. some of these tunnels, uh, they had a couple of things up there. Uh, they had these spider traps or spider holes where uh, it was just a hole, you know, for a man to be dug down in, and then they had little caps on them. And... Uh, our lids on them, which was very well camouflaged because you could walk right on top of it and wouldn't even know it. But sometimes when you walk by and one of the guys, this is, they actually saw one of the Marines doing this. Uh, as he was going down this ridge line, he noticed him, um, he, a guy noticed him with his entrenching tool open up and, and hitting it down on the ground like he's trying to kill a snake or something. But what he was doing was these gooks were coming out of their holes and since his rifle was shot to pieces, the only thing he had left, uh, the only thing he had left to, for fighting is an entrenching tool. Yeah. So he had, he he cut their heads off. He would knock their heads off, uh, you know. And that's when this one marine, that's what he saw this one marine doing. And he went to he saw two heads, you know, uh, you know, next to these holes. So, um, 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 again, there's the spider holes, and then there's when you mentioned about the tunnel rats, the little holes to go in these little tunnels and they're very small so a big guy like you and I would yeah couldn't, you couldn't do it <laughs> I couldn't do it especially with my root beer belly <laughs> I mean my beer belly well whatever but anyway so that's where the tunnel route came into play and that's where this is where you had to really be careful because when you're going through these tunnels they would booby trap them by putting these little thin first you, you think it's just a thin uh, piece of webbing like a spider web webbing but actually it was a trip wire and of course all you gotta do is push that Touch thing it, 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 it would set off a grenade to kill you of course um, but 
that's there's so many facets. I mean, there's so many stories to be told. And you know what? In some cases, maybe so many stories that should not be told or heard. But I reached a point after being quiet for 20 years after I got back from Vietnam uh, because of the memories and the nightmares continuing, continuing on night after night. My wife, uh, her and I, we don't sleep together anymore because of I'm, I'm, I'm always waking up. Um, well, I don't wake up now uh, like I used to a lot, but because I take sleeping pills now. And um, but uh, because of the shrapnel that I still have in me, which is nearly around thirty. When, when 30, were you hit with that? Uh, I was I was hit my last month over there in July of 1967 by a North North Vietnamese mortar. Uh, we were going into a place called Cantian, uh, uh, which was just about five miles south of the border of North Vietnam. And we were going in there to get another <laughs> unit. Uh, actually, we were going in there to recover the bodies from Bravo Company of 1st Battalion, 9th Marines. And this 1st Battalion, 9th Marines, they had a nickname. Their nickname was The Walking Dead. Mm. And the reason why is because, well, it's self-explanatory in a way, yeah. uh, because of so many Marines being killed in that unit. They seem to be the one unit that's always getting to, in, into the major ambushes and really losing a lot of men. Well, this one morning, they end up losing about 80 men. On one skirmish. Yeah, one skirmish. Uh, and that's, oh. that's basically a battalion. So they brought... After Bravo Company got hit to the point where Kambal was completely annihilated, they brought in uh, Alpha Company, and they got hit real bad, just as bad as they did. Well, my unit, we heard about this, and we were going in to try to get the, 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 the North Vietnamese unit that did all this. But not only that, but to recover the bodies. And um, so when we were going up there, and it's, it's ironic that um, when I got wounded, I was... Um, I was... Um, we were approaching a, a church. I couldn't believe this church right out in the middle of nowhere. Now I'm going to show you this picture here. See all those casualties on those pages yeah. there? Yeah. Well, you know. Oh, all right. Let me, I mean, I just want to show it to you because, uh, oh, because uh, it's a Catholic church right out in the middle of, of nowhere. Wow. These are the pictures of me when I got wounded. Uh, the corpsman that knew me. When he saw me come in off the chopper when I landed back on the ship, uh, he, uh, there it is here. Here's a picture of a church. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, one more. Let me get this picture here. Yeah, that's a better one right there. I was following this tank. M48 tank, and we were approaching this church, and we knew the gooks were in there. Actually, they actually shot one of the gooks right out of the steeple, and um, and he was the one that was, saw us coming in, and he he was the FO, the forward observer yeah. for their mortars. So when we got in this open area, uh, just as soon as we got in that open area, he started calling him in on us. And boy, I'll never forget that first explosion, seeing that one marine up in front of me getting knocked out or you know blown up. And then I turned around. I had, I wanted to get into. Of course, the first thing you do is you got to get down low. So um, 
I saw an artillery crater, no more than about maybe just about five, ten feet away from me. And I took one step towards it. And by the time I took the second step, another mortar round came right next to me and blew me right up in the air. Mm. Uh, when I then I found myself, I don't know if I was knocked unconscious, but all I remember is a. Uh, I, I was laying flat down on the ground there and I was opening my eyes and I saw the color changing from the green of the weeds and the brown of the mud turning into bright red and that was blood coming out of my mouth and my face. I got hit, I had my jaw here and I knocked out some teeth and uh, man, I, sometimes, my God, did, did I just get hit? Uh, and um so they were dropping these mortars. Still, they, they still, of course, dropping them all around me. And I got to the point where I thought, well, uh, I can afford to maybe take another hit in the arms or the legs, but I can't afford to get hit in my neck. I had a radio on my back and carrying, a, uh, I had a helmet on. So I tried to pull my arms up to cover my my neck, but my left arm, my left arm wouldn't move. Shrapnel cut the ligaments in the elbow, Ooh. and I couldn't lift, I couldn't pull that up. And my left leg, um, I thought it was gone. All, all I felt was numbness and wetness. And uh, I didn't realize that until the mortar stopped exploding and the lieutenant yells out, pull back, pull back. So everybody started running back past uh, where we came from. And um, as they were running by, of course, I wanted to get up too. So as I tried to get up, my left leg didn't move. And I, I was almost afraid to look down because I thought... I wonder if I even have one. But I called for help, and thank God the last Marine heard me. He came over. He pulled me up, He and I grabbed I grabbed on top of his shoulder pad. I mean, it's like a, on top of his, actually, his flat jacket. It's like grabbing um, the back of a guy's shoulder pad, you know. So I'm holding on that, and he's pulling me up. And uh, he said, let's get out of here. And I took my... <laughs> I said, I can't hardly move. He said, come on, let's go, let's go. And I said, my, my left leg was just dragging. Um, I was hopping just on my right leg. That's the only thing I had was my right leg. So I'm hopping, trying to get back up. And they're dropping more mortars on us. So, so as they're dropping, we, we hit the ground again. Because you got to get down low, you know, to get hit again, of course. And that's when I got hit in my right leg. Uh, and then after that barrage of mortars stopped, then we got up again and we tried to get out of there, get back to where by where we came from. Mm -hmm. um, but this was the clincher. And that's where, again, it comes up. And I talk about this right in my book here. Um, and that's this. is he. I told him, I said, I can't go. I, I can't go anywhere. I, don't, I, don't, you know, I just can't make it. He said, don't give up. And just as soon as he said that, it reminded me of my title, Never Give Up, like I thought of when I was swimming in that one race at the state championship where my dad told me not to give up, and I didn't. But um, so that, that what it, the point I want to make is this, is you don't realize how much strength you still have until someone forces you to go beyond that point. Mm. And a lot of people just don't realize they they quit too easy, too easily. And now when I give talks at schools, there's two words I tell the students. I look right at them. And I, and I tell them, I said, I'm looking right at you. And I, there's two words you can never, ever use again for the rest of your life. One is can't 
and the other one is quit. Mm -hmm. You can never say those words or use them again for the rest of your life because you don't really know your potential because you, you give up too easy. And that's the point I wanted to make when I wrote my book about the attitude about getting beyond that, that point where you want to stop or you want to quit. And people just don't realize that they do have the ability. They really do. And it's good that you reach a point like that in your life where it's, it's a difficult time and you find a way. In this day and age, with the power, well, I'll say the power of the cell phone, but because of the computer and the cell phone, you can look. <laughs> the point I want to make is um, searching for help, either by finding a person to talk to or it'll give you information on how to address a certain issue, how to challenge it. Um, but did they it, get uh, all the shrapnel out of you? No, no, they 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 did not. Uh, I got hit in uh, nine different places on my body. Yeah. Uh, and uh, there's still at least uh, 30, 35 pieces still in me oh. uh, uh, today. Now, they got the big chunks out, of course, but, uh, but the other small. ones are like the, about the size of buckshot or, uh, uh, you know, double odd buck or, well, not so much that because that's all like a ball bearing. And that, Is you it going to work itself to oh, the yeah, surface? Yeah, right. You know what? Yes. And, and some, well, some of them do work on it. And I actually could, you know, pull, <laughs> pinch them out or pull them out. Yeah. But some of them are still, they're still, they're deep in the, uh, in the muscle tissue. Uh, and they deep. don't want to mess and, with and, that. And they, so what it does is when these, uh, what, what, what happens when these, uh, when the barometric pressure, when the barometer drops and it gets down to around 95 or 94 or 93, then this, these shrapnel, it, it stings. It's like, it starts to cut and it's giving this throbbing pain. And so, uh, I will never forget Vietnam because of that reminder. Uh, I, I did get over the nightmares, but I'll never, I can't, uh, they, they, by the way, they did, they did operate twice on me to get more shrapnel out. But the last time they did, they said, for now, it's going to just cause more harm than good. We're going to have to end up cutting some nerves yeah. or, or something like that and all that kind of stuff. So they said, so they just say, just take pain pills. Yeah, I was going to say, I probably told yeah. you, take two Tylenol and yeah, right. bear. Well, I take a yeah. pill called gabapentin. Yeah. And that is a pill that's actually, it's uh, because I got hit real bad in the, in the left leg. It actually clipped the nerve. And that's why when I got hit, I couldn't feel anything because it hit the nerve. Matter of fact, for four or five months after that, my I couldn't use my foot, my left foot at all uh, until then I got over the healing of that. But still, in this day and age, there's times when I'm I'm walking. And again, it's when these barometric pressure drops. All of a sudden, I'll feel like I'm stepping on a hot cigarette butt, and I jerk and yeah. I get up and I say, "Oh!" And you know what gets me? Well, I shouldn't say what gets me is a lot of times. That that pain will make me. I will yell out, and sometimes I'll yell out a cuss word, like well, I won't go into give you an example. You already can imagine what kind of words I might use. Yeah. But yeah, I'm but, kind uh, of a potty mouth, but I kind of watch myself on the But year. but throughout my years of working, uh, and I was a salesman all my life, and uh, and of course, when you're a salesman selling furniture, you're talking to people. And when these low pressures come in and all that stuff, and all of a sudden I start getting these jerks and this throbbing, this thing, and sometimes the, the people I'm talking to have children with them. And I'll yell out 
not believe me, it's never intentionally, of course. It's just a spontaneous reaction to a sharp, stinging pain. Mm -hmm. And I, when I got back from Vietnam, yeah, I had a very dirty mouth. Uh, I don't mean I didn't brush my teeth, you know, yeah. my language. Uh, and uh, I've, uh, it's been hard for me to really stop that. Uh, I just, well, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to dwell in on that. But the point, oh, this is what I wanted to tell you. Uh, when I got hit and the uh, one Marine was helping me get out, and after the second barrage was over with, I, we finally got our, our, our back to about, uh, it was about maybe 200 yards away where they called in a, a, a medevac chopper. And I wanted to get on, of course, that chopper right away because all my wounds are still open. Um, they're still mm -hmm. bleeding. Thank God I didn't get hit in, in the artery because I would have bled yeah, out and died, yeah. of course. But by the time I uh, we got to the uh, the LZ um, where the medevac was, chopper was coming in, uh, I was one of the first ones on it. And uh, when I got on it, um, because my wounds were all still bleeding, um, I wanted to... Uh, I needed to lay down, so I laid down right between the two gunners, the two machine gunners, on in this in this chopper, um, and all the other guys came and they sat on these little, little fold down cots like. Mm -hmm. But anyway, this is this is uh, this is what happened when the chopper starts to reel up because I had to get out of there, and uh, uh, so as the chopper is starting to climb up. All of a sudden, both machine gunners are firing their weapons, and all these hot casings, they're, 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 they're laying all over top of me. I have that happen all I'm the time. Sorry. That's why I hit I hit shut my phone. Yeah, let, me, let me get it here. Where is it here? One, two, three, and let me get this. Okay, now it's off. I'm sorry about that. That's all right. It happens. But anyway. Back to the when the chopper when he's he's get he's starting to get up and I said and I kept saying get up get up I'm, I'm I don't know if I'm saying the words or thinking the words, but I had to get up above these trees we were getting shot at by the enemy they were trying to shoot the chopper down yeah. and the and the fuselage you know it's very thin right it's it's that much thicker than this paper right here, um, but uh, so I thought. They were going to shoot the chopper out of the sky. I wasn't even going to make it out. And I kept praying, get up, get up higher, higher above the trees. And finally, once it started to go, and you know, the, uh, the, the, the horizontal position, you know, the vertical, I knew we were finally taking off. And then the next step was getting back on the ship where, I, where we flew off from. And, and this was an LPH ship, which stands for Landing Platform for Helicopters. And on that ship, they have a uh, they have a hospital ward, you know, mm -hmm. and all that to take care of the casualties. So, I was just hoping to get back on that ship right away. To you know, um, I guess I figured well, I didn't get hit in the artery, but my, all my wounds were open and bleeding, and I just I just needed help. Well, finally gone on the ship about 10, 15 minutes little ride or whatever, and um, one hour later, I was on the operating table. And probably a couple hours after that, I finally woke up. And I remember waking up in a nice, clean bed, a nice, quiet ward. And uh, and all of a sudden, I heard something so peaceful and so quiet. I couldn't believe it. I should say I couldn't believe it. But one of the Navy corpsmen was playing some music. And he was playing this, um, I think it was Johnny Mathis, uh, the song either Born Free or Moon River. But it was so nice and quiet and low tone. I just felt so relaxed. And I didn't have any pain because it was all doped up. But I thought, 
I finally made it out, and I and I looked down to see if I had both of my legs, and I could see I had them both, but my left foot was just numb. I, I um, because of the piece, the shrapnel hitting that nerve. But anyway, um, after that, um, about about a week being on the ship, they actually I had gangrene that cut in my left leg here, and. The, the surgeon or one of the corpsmen told me this it was a year later and the one who took the pictures of me actually on the operating table he lived in my area over in northern Kentucky and when I got back he brought the, the pictures over t- for us you know he gave us the pictures and he said you didn't realize this but uh, because of the gangrene every time they changed the dressing on my left leg they could smell that rotten flesh and I smelled rotten flesh before up in that, that one battle up at Quezon where all the, the dead bodies are laying all over the hills and, you know, they swelled up like pigs and covered with flies and swarmed with maggots. And, and so you smell this rotten smell. And I was up there for, like I said, about 14, 15 days smelling this stuff. So, But then here on the ship, I was smelling the same thing. And that odor was coming up from my left leg. Well, they told me by the fourth day, if it was still there, they were going to amputate the leg. Yeah. And, uh, because it was going to spread and all that stuff. So, but fourth day came and, um, the gangrene had dissipated. My leg was saved. But, wow. but I still had that, that issue with the nerve damage and my foot couldn't move my foot at all. I, I even told the doctor, I said, I can't move my foot. It's just the way it's going to be. He says, I don't know. It's just, just time will tell. And by the fifth day, this is on the fifth day. This is where my my nerves started to heal, and this this is what they feel like when the nerves heal. It literally felt like someone had taken the skin off my bottom of my foot, exposing the raw muscle tissue, and then taking a wire brush and, and rubbing it on on the raw muscle mm-hmm. tissue. That's how sensitive my foot was, and that's actually what the doctors wanted to hear or see, and for me to feel that because that meant. That it's that it's rehealing now, and it's, so I had to go through about four or five months of that unbelievable sensitivity, and that's what kept me from sleeping. And all these all the nights uh, being in this hospital wards th- throughout the next four months, um, the next morning all the guys would I don't want to say all of them, but a lot of them would say they said Fred, all you did was yell out and cuss all night long. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and I said, I, oh, I did not. I, I said, I was awake. I couldn't even sleep last night. He said, no, no, you were yelling. And every night it's it's it's, yeah. it's, it's yelling out, look out, look out, get down, get on. Here comes one. Get, kill this one. I, uh, shoot this one. Here comes another one. That's the kind of stuff I was yelling yeah. out throughout the night. Um, and they said, they, they, they were always waking up saying, why did you? I said, well, shit, if, <laughs> if I'm like that, what kind of combat were, were you guys in? I mean, this is what I saw. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's just, anyway, that's the way my, my sleepless nights, uh, kept progressing on and on and on, on, on the way through my marriage up to the point where my wife now, like I said, in the last, last 10 years, last 15 years, we've been sleeping in different rooms. Mm. Uh, it's just that, you know, because of my jerking of the, uh, shrapnel that's still in me, and the um, the trouble of sleeping, always waking up and uh, being so sensitive to any kind of sound, just the slightest little thing would make me 
Jerker, jerker. looker, you know. And yeah. that, that, that gabapentin that you take, my wife tried that, and after two pills, I mean, she was really goofy taking that. Oh, you mean, it, it, she was like, uh, oh, there's another one I take. It's called a bru, uh, a bru propion, and that's an antidepressant. I take that. It's supposed to make me happy. <laughs> well, this one here, but, I, was, I was surprised because uh, it's obviously for pain. And uh, she said, well, I just can't. Told the doctor, so I just can't take that. It's, it just makes goopy, and then I put in er. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. No, really, I never. Well, uh, but yeah, it has two uh, effects. One is to probably numb the pain. The other one's probably make you kind of, you know, a lot of guys walk around like they're. A lot of guys have commented like that too. By yeah. the way, uh, other fellow Marines telling me that they say I feel like I'm walking around like a zombie, and I'm like a or. or a, Sand moaning or whatever kind of stuff. So, but yeah, it's um, well, if, is there where your nerves are? I, I presume when you have these reactions, the the small shrapnel is never going to work its way out of that that area, right? And so you're just stuck with the rest of your life, right? Yeah, I am. So that's why the gamma supposed to help. And also, I took another one, what's called a hydrocodine. That was a real strong uh, painkiller, mm-hmm. and I used to take that too, and along with the gabapentin. The gabapentin had it supposed to be having to do with numbing that yeah. nerve or the, addressing the nerve issue, and also people who have um, what is that uh, epilepsy? Uh, what is that? Some kind of emotional uh, disease. I can't remember the title of it, but well. Um, the hydrocodeine, they quit take, they quit giving me that. That got to the point where I think they thought it was uh, going to be too much of a chance of being um, addicted to, mm-hmm. and that, and uh, they didn't want that. And, uh, so um, the gabapentin, I, that's why I've been living off. Well, I've been living off a couple other pills too, but uh, besides the sleeping pill, the uh, bupropion, which is the antidepressant, and then the gabapentin, which had to deal with the pain. Uh, uh, keeps me, let's say, in, in check. <laughs> yeah. or, um, so uh, now it's, um, the, but throughout those years of, um, and now, God, it's been almost 55 years, I yeah. think. 55 years since that happened. And yeah, I, still, I, I still think about it. Yeah, well, you have to. And um, I, and, and I, you know, but at least the nightmares, uh, it really, they, they really decrease the nightmares. I hardly ever. The only kind of nightmares I usually have now—they're not even nightmares. It's, it's the scene of me, back at the base, getting ready to go home and packing up, and everybody else is gone, and I'm still looking for my clothes to put in the suitcase. That's a way of the kind of dreams I have now. Yeah. Kind of silly dreams like that, but. Well, you know, I might have told you this on the phone, but I don't think I mentioned this on a podcast. But, uh, my uncle Art. Uh, you know, I told you it was medic at Remagen, the Remagen Bridge. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and when uh, I think it was 1978 or 79, uh, I still had some uncles and aunts alive, and some of them came out to the house. We, you know, I grilled some steaks and stuff. Uh-huh. And um, I was talking to Art, and I said, hey, you know, he liked to drink his beer and never had much to say. And I asked him, I said, hey, 
Art, you know, you never ever talked about World War II. He said, I'm still having nightmares. He said, I, he said, I can't talk about it. He said, the, he said, number one, I was a target for the Germans, you know, because I was a medic. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And, That's he, one thing and he said, because they didn't want, you know, they didn't want the GI shooting back at them. Yeah, right. He so get, right. The, get rid of the medic. Yeah. But he was treating Germans and GIs. Oh, was he? Yeah, because there were so many wounded on the bridge. Oh, yeah. He, they pull him over, and and he's not going to let a German die. He's not going to let a GI. So he was treating both of them. Yeah. Hmm. And when he died, my cousin went down, he died as a bachelor and um, uh, for a living he was a bookie. (laughs) So so, anyway, but the funny thing is he was going through his bachelor apartment and he found this box and my uncle never gave a dime to any politician. But from 1945 until his death, he had a Christmas card from every president. He did? Yeah. Oh, man. From and every I looked president. up, I, I thought, really? maybe did this Did he guy... save him? Did he oh. say more? You could actually see him and see him today? I, I My cousin's dead, oh. so I don't know what happened to him. Well, oh. that's what, like all the letters that I talk about, that's in my book. Yeah. My mother saved every letter I wrote home. Oh, wow. And, that, that, so, and I wrote a lot, and I, because they wanted to know what I was seeing, what I was doing, but I got to the point where I thought... Hey, maybe I shouldn't be writing, telling them stuff like this. Well, I, I, I think, it's, I, I think but, it's good therapy for you. It was and, not a good therapy for me, but because... Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. You. Yeah, well, and, and it's something that people read about in papers or they see little scenes, but not much, you know, and people should know, I mean, war's hell. Right, and that's why I did it. People need to know, especially yeah. our youth, and maybe our grandchildren, they, you know, they don't realize what we have. Like you, you've got a, let's face it, you've got a very serene, beautiful layout here. And, and you know, we didn't get this by luck. Mm-hmm. If it wasn't, especially for the Second World War veterans, you know, let's face it, with Japan and Germany, I mean, yeah, Japan and Germany on both sides of the, our border, I mean, our, um, our coastlines there. Um, the next step was us, and uh, if it wasn't for all that, all those, oh. not only the men, but the women. The women were really involved with, actually, they were out there flying planes and uh, yeah. um, actually making a lot of the machinery, I mean, all the equipment and everything. Well, you know, I've always said if, uh, you know, if it wasn't for George Washington and his army of farmers, shopkeepers and such, oh, yeah. Yeah, he saved the, he saved the country. But the second generation saved the world. Oh, that's a good way. That's, yeah. that's a very good way of putting it. Yeah, and you're, you're right. And that's why a lot of people don't think about, you know, the Revolution War. Uh, what what kind of uh, the attitude of the farmers, how they got together for the, right. the cause of having, of, of striving for independence and knowing that this is the right thing yeah. to do. And uh, the British weren't very nice, uh, but that's just but, the way But that, you know... And the great, the greatest generation, World War II. I mean, there were people, forty years old. That I mean, they just they just joined. It was it was a cause. It was a just cause. Uh, but let's face it, 
Roosevelt got us into the Second World War with Japan because when Japan went to China, he cut off all oil to Japan. Right, and that was the main reason why Japan— And he cut off all banking, all their funds that were in the United States. They couldn't, they couldn't get them. He was trying— to, he was trying to break Japan. Yeah, right. But they they got backed in the corner so bad, uh, and I think they knew Japan was going to attack someplace because they had no choice. They, they had no economy. Yeah, right. I mean, they, 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 right. I'm glad you uh, you're very well aware of that and, uh, and knowledgeable about that. A lot of people aren't. Mm-hmm. They don't know what uh, you know. That was the main reason why they attacked us. For right. them to carry on what they had to do, they, they had, had, had people and, and, starving. Right. So, but but and, again, and they're, they're, they shouldn't have been in China. But again, it's us taking sides on something that we shouldn't have been involved in at the time. That we should have we should have threatened Japan, tell them what we would do to them, but he just he cut them cut them off, mm-hmm. and I uh, it was tough and. And uh, when I was growing up, I had uh, two families that lived across the street from me, the Yamaguchis and Shimizus. And these were the greatest people. And they were in concentration camps on the West Coast. Oh, yeah. Lost their businesses. They lost everything. Oh, I remember it. I mean, mean, it's just so, so terrible. And um, except for... The one, the one mother and the one father, separate family. They were born in Japan. Everybody else was born in this country. Yeah. They were all U.S. citizens. Yeah, right. Yeah. And I mean, to take to treat people like that. I know. I know. It's just that's why <laughs> you shake your head. Well, that's why now when I see Vietnamese. Uh, by the way, um, I was very. I I had a lot of hatred and revenge towards uh, the Viet. Well, I'll say North Vietnam, but. This just happened this year. I can't believe this happened, but um, in the beginning of the spring, I had a um, landscaping company come out and do my landscaping for me. And one of the people, one of the young men, I looked at him and I thought, he looks just like a Vietnamese. So I went up to him, I said, are you from Vietnam? He said, yeah, yes. I said, where? And he said, North Vietnam. Wow. And, And I thought, God, here I got a North Vietnamese who used to be my enemy, and here he is. He's working on my property, doing landscaping work. But you know what? I I wanted to do something that I have never done, and this is one thing about getting over PTSD and getting rid of the hate and the anger. I went up to him, and I looked right in his eyes, And uh, I, uh, I, I said, I'm sorry for all the harm I caused to you, onto your people. Uh, I didn't mean it personally. That was just part of being a soldier and fighting for our government and doing what they told me to do. Just like your people were told to right. do what they did against us. But now... That's all in the past. Um, 
he was he's he's only 21 years old this young man mm-hmm. he wasn't even born matter of fact his mother he said his mother was just a little girl like uh, eight or nine years old back then uh, uh, when the war was going yeah. on and then since she had him uh she had to put him in a orphanage because she 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 couldn't rate she didn't have enough money or whatever funds to take her him and all that so he he was put into a orphanage group and uh, he was adopted and uh, uh to come over here and uh but when i went up and i was able to say those words to him and you know what it felt so good um to admit that i'm wrong or and to express sorrow to those to him and just like now i had tears in my eyes just like i was telling him um and we both hugged mm. And uh, I felt so good to do to that. To, and I felt like I'm getting to the end of my um, my therapy. Or uh, one part about therapy is about admitting you know, your your guilt or your your shamefulness or the whatever the right term is. But um, just just like people would. Uh, back in after the Second World War, they hated all the German people, or they hated all the Japanese people. Well, in this day and age, none of those people—they weren't even alive during those wars. Yeah, but you so, know, it's 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 not the it's not the people; it's the damn politicians. Oh, I know. It's a, it's a government. And, it's a politician. That's why. And South Vietnam was so corrupt, and we still had to put our nose in that. Which, I, I mean, it, it's like right now. They don't come any more corrupt in Ukraine, and oh. I, the people are suffering. Oh and, man, I I've, and, and I, I mean, and we're we're feeding them money and everything, and it was a, between him and Putin. But the, you know, there there's a reason. See, they they start putting, they start putting missile on Putin's border, which. NATO said it would never happen. And even though he's always wanted to reclaim the, the territory right. for the, bring the old Soviet Union back. Right, from the Second World War. The, the, yeah, yeah, the straw broke the camel's back, right. was putting missiles on, the, on his border. <laughs> and, and, I mean, we have no accountability for where that money's going in Ukraine. And there, those politicians are so lousy over there, and we're buddy buddy with them. And but the poor people, the citizens, they don't want anything to do with it. The same with these Russians have lost hundreds of thousands of people over in, in Ukraine, and these guys don't want to fight. Yeah, no, they're, right. And they're, they're they're fight. They might be fighting some relatives even. So it's just. Oh yeah, well, that's it's just, yeah, well, it's yeah. just crazy. Especially um, in the, uh, um, uh, Berlin, when the Berlin Wall, you know, oh. all that uh, relatives on both sides, and here they, you know, all that kind of stuff, and uh, just crazy. Well, it almost reminds me of the Civil War. Well, uh, uh, most casualties ever, Civil War. More than oh, I know, right? It was over six hundred thousand. I remember well, counting, counting the wounded and people that died from disease or, or just starving to death. Over a million. I've just got to say it had to be over a million. Yeah, over yeah. a million. In That's Civil one thing war. about uh, a war is uh, you know, war is hell, but civilians. Well, and, and how dumb was that? Civilians, the Civil War. 
That was stupid. I know. Politicians. I mean, Man, all look. they wanted to do is give the, the we want the main reason was the, the black man uh, they they wanted to save slavery to continue, and but the North said no, give them give them the right to to be pe- you know to citizens. That, that, was, that was a lot more than slavery. Oh well, a lot more than slavery. They, you know that that was that was an excuse. Well, what do you think the main reason was then? The thing is, I I always think that the North had all the industry, and the South was struggling, and they the they didn't have the money. They money was withheld to really make the South an industrial part of this country. Well, they sure had the cotton for sure. It was the yeah. cotton capital of the world. Yeah, but uh, yeah, but. N- n- that that was it. That oh, that maybe whiskey. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. yeah. By the way, <laughs> does your medication affect your ability to drink? No. Oh, good. Uh, no, no. Well, no. Uh, well, you know, I uh, like I don't take that much really. Uh, yeah. I don't drink. I mean, I do. Yes, I do have a drink, uh, but. Uh, I'm beyond those days. So when I was a teenager, you oh, know, yeah. you drink, you get sick and all that. But I, I like to have four ounces of whiskey a night. Yeah. I drink it neat. I enjoy bourbon, rye. Yeah, I know. I just bought a bottle, a bottle of Jack Daniels just uh, just yesterday. I hope and, it was the good Jack Daniels and not the what's well, the not the black Jack, is it? Is that what you buy? Well, there's a black label and there's a green yeah. label. Well, there's several. Oh, is there several different ones? Yeah. Buy. Buy Jack Daniel's bottle and bond, or well, I, I bought it right on the ten. I mean, right on the Indiana border here, right in Harrison, West Harrison. There's a liquor store, right on the state line, literally on the state yeah. line, but it's on the Indiana side of the street. Yeah. Well, anyway, that's where I bought it. Well, yesterday. when you're on your way back, if you want to stop in, stop in Batesville Liquor Store. You'll you'll never see a liquor store like this in a small town. Oh, is it right on the main drag on, on 229? As you're coming 229, uh, you go, there's Fifth Third Bank on the corner. It, it's, there's Sherman House. Is, on, it, is it like right in the middle of the town, yes, city? there's a little. Okay. If, if you see the bank, you turn right and then turn into this parking lot, you know, I mean, it's it's enormous. Okay, yeah. And just just go in, and they might even have a bottle open that you can sip. But get get a Jack Daniels, either get a Jack Daniels single barrel, or get a. Is that that? Is that actually the title? Single barrel. Si- single, single barrel, or get get a bottle and bond Jack Daniels. Okay. All right. And uh, and I like a lot. Of, I I drink a lot of the high proof. The regular black label well, check. Yeah, wait, wait, wait. What is the uh, the, al- oh, the the alcohol content? Oh, bottle and bonds a hundred proof. Oh, yeah. Okay, and yeah. you're you're drinking if you're drinking yeah, the black label. Yeah, it's, it's probably eighty six. Yeah, or whatever, eighty yeah. percent. And uh, and I, I like the higher proof stuff. I'll drink one hundred thirty proof stuff oh, yeah. and down. But and I like the lower proof. But uh, Jack's the. I think Jack Daniels may be the third third largest whiskey seller in the country, but it's, uh, they have got some really, really good stuff. And it's not that it, Jack, Jack, the black label is the most popular of any of them. By the them. way, where is their, uh, 
where is their uh, brewery? Uh, is it is it in like uh, Tennessee or yeah, Kentucky? Tennessee. Jack Daniels, all Tennessee. Okay, I didn't know if it was, so, yeah. it was Kentucky or Tennessee. Yeah. And and they don't call it they call it Tennessee whiskey, but technically oh, yeah. it's a bourbon. Oh yeah. And you know, it's, I think that's what it says. They've got I, some. I, I think it, it does say the word Tennessee on that label. Tennessee, but I think. Uh, yeah, well. it's, Tennessee, it's Tennessee whiskey, okay. and that's. Uh, or did you ever drink uh, wild turkey? That's, oh, that's 101 yeah. proof or something. Well, I got some wild turkey. It's 130 proof, too. Oh, man. That's what I heard you say before. Yeah. Man, that you don't want to... That's just sipping whiskey. It right? is. You don't want to... You know, just a sip. Well, see, the, the nice thing about a higher proof whiskey is, first of all, the first sip, you're going to coat your palate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and they get a little bit of burn. Yeah. Yeah, a little bit of strong finish. Your next sip, it starts opening up. The nose, you, oh yeah, you, oh yeah, and and the taste, and it starts opening up. The third sip, and then on, it really opens up. Yeah, and it's flip, it's yeah. totally different than your first sip of whiskey. Anything. That reminds me, in a way, uh, like a lot of people when they drink wine, they they'll stir it, oh, yeah. and they'll and they'll, they'll they'll smell the aroma, and then they just take a just a little taste, just like you're saying about. Just getting the palate. Uh, I, I hit a whiskey the other day, and I'm sniffing it, and I'm thinking, what? I could, I could smell the vanilla, a little bit of oak, but I, I couldn't put my finger on it, and it, it actually it, it actually tasted like fresh bakery goods. Hmm. And, it hit, <laughs> and it offset the pepper that was in it. Oh, and man. Just, I mean, uh, and, and there's some whiskey. I could just sit and sniff all night, not even drink it. It smells that good. But you have <laughs> to get used to it. Yeah. And it's, oh, yeah. Uh, well, but, but sometime, you yeah, just try something. But, you know, we've been talking about an hour and 15 minutes. Oh, so. okay. Oh, <laughs> but, God. Well, it's funny how time flies when you're having a good time, yeah. as the old saying goes. But, well, but that what? reminds me of one day. My dad sent me some whiskey in Vietnam. Do you know how he sent it? Uh, oh. Because they would X-ray a lot of the boxes that coming from the U.S. coming yeah. out towards us, because they don't know what we're getting, so he started X-raying them. So my dad purposely put them in baby bottles, <laughs> but but he also mixed it with honey. Oh, and, really? And it was called it, it was called his famous cough syrup. <laughs> we used to drink it. We used to go rabbit hunting. But and, and like you said, it, when you first taste it, it was uh, it was smooth. And, but when it started going down your throat, then you start to feel the warmth of it. Yeah. And what I did is I actually shared it with the guys in my squad. They couldn't believe that I got this whiskey uh, and, you know, I just, and baby bottles, but that's what we had to do. Well, see, with most of the low-proof whiskeys, what's happened, when, when you actually swallow it, the finish of it just dissipates right away. Oh. So you're ready for another drink. Yeah. When you're <laughs> drinking a higher-proof, you're sipping it. And you let the finish when it goes down. You got some burn to it, yeah. but you can really enjoy the aftertaste. And you're not going to sip it right away. You're just going to take your time and enjoy it. Oh. Then you take another sip. Hey, listen, when you were talking about right in the middle of town, right? I should look for the Fifth Third Bank first. Yeah. In it's, other it, words, when you come into town, you'll pass City Hall. You'll pass the fire department. That's all on the right side when you're going in town. Well, I'll be going north, of course, uh, on uh, two two twenty nine. Yeah, and uh, and on the left side you'll see the Sherman, which is a restaurant, and then on the right side you'll see a street and you'll see Fifth Third Bank. 
turn right there and then turn left into this parking lot, oh, okay. and you'll see this big Batesville Liquor Company okay. sign. Yeah. All right, good. I'll and stop. when you go in there, you'll you'll be shocked. Should I tell them that that uh, you sent me? Oh, oh hell yes. Yeah, <laughs> they say, oh, I know him. Everybody knows me. Oh, do they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, uh, well, great. Hey, listen, this has been a, I got met. It was, it was like therapy to me to uh, open up to you and well, to I anyone think, that is listening to us out there. Well, what this will be, this won't be aired. I'm trying to think. Uh, See, what I'm doing, I'm trying to get everything ahead of time because this be a weather's Oh, coming. yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I remember. So you yours will be air, aired, I think, the second Sunday in February. So it's... What, what, then, will you do me the favor and just text and text me I'll and say, text. say, Fred, it's it's going to be aerial on XYZ day or whatever, or yeah. a certain time and station or whatever. And, and the thing is, what I suggest you do... So for children and that, when when you get it, if you if you go to my go to LarryReedy.net and they'll have it, it's my web page, but it'll say listen, hit listen, and then scroll down, and that's where all my episodes are all oh. listed. Okay, and I'll when yours come yeah, out, yeah. there's a little kind of a little fork it looks like the, there, you know, there'll be three three little symbols and if you push on that you can hit copy and then when you you can take that and you can put it on your computer uh, oh, yeah. you can send it yeah. to your children yeah, put on a, a DVD or a CD or a DVD or, or, or a flash drive or just something just like yeah, yeah all thumb drives yeah, yeah and, drives. Uh, and and basically if you have that and your children have that a hundred years from now and says somebody looking at a picture of great great Bam Paul Fred yeah <laughs> they can listen to your podcast yeah I like that yeah definitely I really it's I'd be really anxious to get that text from, yeah. from you, San Fred, this is it. I mean, this is the day and this is the time. Yeah. So, uh, you know, but yeah. I can always, I can always listen to it. Always. Uh, because yeah. just going to your website, www. Yeah, or Larry, you can go to that, Apple or Spotify or. Oh, yeah. I'm on all the popular pod, podcast sites. So, oh. it's, uh, but the easiest way is. Like, for instance, if you go to my Facebook page, it'll be on the day that it's released. Mm-hmm. It'll say Larry Reed's America, and it'll have a description underneath it of your podcast. All you have to do is click on that image. It takes you right to my website, hit listen, and then just sc- scroll down. You'll be the first episode oh. up. Uh, oh, okay. So it's, it's yeah. pretty easy. It's uh, uh it's been fun. I, I just finished up uh, with high school, some high school seniors from Batesville High School in Oldenburg, and these kids are just, I mean, oh, really, yeah. really got it together. Yeah. In fact, Oldenburg, I had to, <coughs> I had to ask the uh, teacher that brought them over. I actually had, uh, I had six podcasts with three people on each podcast. And I said, is there anyone in the junior, senior year 
that's not a member of the National Honor Society. And he said, maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> but all 18 of them were on the National Honor Society. Already? Oh. Yes. <laughs> I was wondering about the chairs behind me here. Um, when you well, I up... set that up for Oldenburg. Oh, okay. I, oh, do you? See, it says they brought nine at a time. Oh. So six of them sat there, and I wanted them to be there because I thought they were all a little bit nervous, you know, about a podcast, and I took my time with the first one, and I think the next six, when they came on different times, they were a little more relaxed. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So... Because they were listening to what was going on yeah. in the first podcast. Yeah, well, I can't wait to tell uh, Cindy, you know, uh, yeah. uh, what's her last name, Rob, Roberts? Roberts, yeah. Yeah, I, um, yeah about that. I just talked well, to She's one, one of 18 grandchildren. Oh, really? Yeah. Only 18? Man. Yeah. And Eight, seven well, great-grands. I was going to say, well, how many children uh, did you have then? Seven. We have seven Oh, yeah, children. seven. Yeah. You, got, you had seven children, and of course, how you got them, but... Well, where do you have Christmas? Here <laughs> or in the house? house. Yeah. We will have about forty. I I, I love that, that that English tutor look. Yeah. I you know that's uh, when you said that I I know I'll recognize it when I yeah. when I drive it down the road here and uh, it was easy to find really. Uh, actually, yeah. it was a very enjoyable ride. And, uh, perfect timing too. Yeah. Uh, this time of the day, yeah. uh, on this date, not a weekend or something like that. So that's why I'm glad you picked a Tuesday. Yeah, so. yeah. I've had, well, I'm trying to get. Trying to get ahead of the game because I know what January and February is going to probably bring weather-wise. Oh, yeah, yeah, and, definitely. Uh, like, I had two podcasts yesterday. Oh, and you I did? got three today. You three today? Oh, am I, 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 one am I at, last one? Or? No, no, I had one at 10. I've got you. And then tonight is our whiskey and beer, oh. which are two different podcasts. And the whiskey's oh, kind of normal and serious, so, Beers gets a little bit goofy because I got, I, I, I actually I picked three co-hosts for this. And the problem is we all like to talk and we all like to drink. <laughs> and and uh, we don't drink much. We have these little five-ounce beer mugs. They, oh, and they oh. only taste, they taste four whiskeys, about three-quarters of an ounce. And I've already tasted the whiskey and I've already graded them for me. and But the beer... We'll drink six, well, they're five-ounce glasses, but about a, uh, maybe a, an ounce is the head. And then we're, we got a pizza coming out, so we're trying to pick the best beer to go with that pizza. pizza. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and the craft beers, the higher-proof craft beers, they don't mix well with pizza because they kind of overwhelm it. And uh, oh, do they? the yeah. best beer so far that we've... And we've done this with quite a few pizzas, but the two most popular beers preparing with a pizza has been uh, hams and Pabst Blue Ribbon. Oh, good old Pabst Blue Ribbon. Yeah. And, but, I had that in Vietnam. <laughs> but, but I mean, see, they're, they're about four and a quarter, four and a half percent, and you get an eight and a half or 12 percent or 15 percent craft beer it, it overwhelms the pizza i was just gonna say, well i never heard of uh, uh, beer having that high oh off. we have we had one one night it's called cocamundra 19 proof 19 percent alcohol it was like 
a chocolate and coffee bomb that you were drinking with a little bit of coconut. Man. So it was so smooth. Was it? Oh, but yeah. now four ounces is okay, but can you imagine sitting down and drinking a couple 12-ounce cans of that? <laughs> Oh, I know. That's why. That's why I commented, man. That's high octane. I mean, uh, high, uh, you know. Yeah. So, but it's uh, it, it's fun and it's uh, it's something we enjoy. But I think right now I, I want to thank you for appearing on the podcast here. I, I think that people are going to really enjoy this, and it's. Uh, I know it's tough to talk about stuff like war, and yeah. but I think. People need to know. I think it's good therapy for you. It is. And it's, uh, uh, so I, I think you have any parting comments? Uh, uh, well, like I mentioned a couple times when I was talking, there's so much to be said and so much maybe that should not be said. But because of my issue with PTS, and I purposely leave the last letter off, the D. Mm -hmm. D stands for disorder. Yeah. Post-traumatic stress is not a disorder. Right. It's a normal reaction that the brain adheres or relates to after experiencing you know, horrific, terrifying events. And it doesn't have to be a military person. It can be a civilian in an automobile accident, a person being in a house and a tornado hits, a young girl being raped, uh, all that kind of stuff, uh, you know, it's it's that impact that stays with you forever, and you and you gotta. I found out that I had to get it out of my system by talking and doing something. That's why by my wife helping me doing this book here, editing it, it really was great therapy. Okay, well, so tell for, the tell the who, audience where can they get the book? I was just going to give it. See there? Okay, let me, let's see here. I got a, there's a website right in the middle. Okay, www.cincybooks.com or they can email you right. at fhman6jl 6jl at fuse.net right. Or they can phone you yeah, right. at 513-490-5217. I presume, well, it's a smartphone, or they can text you. At yeah, right. Number. Yeah, or text me, and then uh, we'll go from there. But yeah. uh, uh, if, if they buy, you know, the only way I can take a transaction is either by a check or by cash. Yeah. But the website, you can put on a credit card, and yeah. they can send you the book. And I can send it to you, too. It's the only thing is extra is just the postage, because... You can manage a book this heavy. Yeah. It costs about eight dollars. Yeah. The the one thing, uh, I I used to take credit cards on a website, and oh. unless you have a perfect backup, one time when I went to bed, I and the the credit card company was at fault because they have to cut something off at a certain point. But anyway, when I got up and I checked my website at about 10 o'clock in the morning, um, I had to call a company and stop it. $4,400 worth of what? bogus, bogus stuff oh, got through them. They had to eat it. I told them, oh, I said, I said, 
you know, this is not my problem. This is your problem in your system yeah. that was supposed to pick it up. And we went back and forth. I said, you know, hey, it's not the money, man, but screw with me. We're going to court. Yeah. <laughs> hey, there was one other thing I was going to mention, and this is the new way of doing transaction. You probably heard of it. Venmo. Venmo, yeah. V-E-N-M-O. So people can do that to me. Uh, yeah. they can, I can give them my little... My, my account or name and all that, and they can just send me the money. Would do the trade. People are starting to do that now. Bet, better use cash or check. Yeah. Oh yeah. Right. If you can get away from any kind of uh, transactions right. going through the internet or, or uh, you know, you're right, credit card, any possible way, you can eliminate the possibility of people detecting it and, yeah. and seeing it. So. You know, uh, I, I can't tell you her name, but I'll tell you her, her pseudonym. Is Pepper Ann, and this guy this guy called me from Texas uh, several months ago. She's did a, I did a remote podcast with her, and uh, she said I'd like to be on your podcast. I said, Well, why and what do you do? And she said, Well, I wrote a book. And I said, What's it about? She said, Well, it's about modern day cattle wrestling in Texas. And said, and it's also about my cousin who's serving 14 life terms in prison. Oh, come on. 14 life? Oh, that's incredible. Oh, is that true? Yeah, honest to God. That's... <laughs> and, I mean, she is just a gem. And uh, uh, she's got a, you know, she's published it. She, and she's, she's doing that full time. I... My second book, which is about guns, I, I, you have to, you have to do gun shows to sell it. And well, I've you know, sold a lot of them, pre-sale and pre-sales and that. But it, the problem is, at my age, 14 hours on my feet, it's just not worth it. So I gave up doing any more book signings. I'm not going to do that anymore yeah. at all. So. Yeah. It's just uh, yeah. I've had them too, and I just I feel like well I reached I reached a point enough is enough, and um, at least I, the only reason why I did the book because I wanted to have my children and my grandchildren yeah. have something about their. Well, that's what I started with my first book, and a buddy of mine hey, taught me to. Can I ask you something about your uh, your guns? Yeah. And that's this. Do you have any muzzle loaders? No, I'm not into that. Okay. Uh, do you have any uh, flintlock? Not into that. I'm okay. into. Like, I, I, oh, ARs, well, revolvers. Well, when you got the, you said you got a 200-yard range back there, right? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, well, like, well, I've got a Winchester 270, but like bolt action. And um, anyway, I just, uh, I keep wanting to find a place to, well, there is a firing range down in Harrison, downtown Harrison. Yeah. Well, actually, it's on the state line road there. You probably know where it is. But that's the only close place where I know where I can you know, do some yeah. target practice. Yeah, I have I have to be careful because when anybody shoots here, I have to be out there. And it's it's a, a it's an insurance thing. It's a liability thing. Oh yeah. And like, um, I've I used to give a lot of gun classes for women especially, and I wouldn't well, let the husbands stay. They'd have to. Go sit by oh, the really? Pool. I mean, it's show them how to fire a pistol? Is that oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, some, yeah. some should own a slingshot and some are very good. <laughs> and, uh, but 
uh, those days are gone. I got bad knees. The concrete's too much. I'm not doing that anymore. But uh, it's it's something. Uh, if, if I know somebody and they say, hey, "What are you, you you busy or can I come out and shoot?" I'll give them a time, but I'll be out there watching them. Mm -hmm. no. uh, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. sure. So, yeah. Okay. Well, I guess it's uh, yeah. It's well, let's let, we're an hour and thirty minutes. <laughs> so, Man. This, this is as long as some of my beer podcasts. <laughs> See, if I t look, if I talk any more, I'll probably have to charge you. So we're gonna cut it. We're gonna okay. Well, anyway, let's uh, let's close this out. Okay. With the national anthem here. Oh yeah, perfect way. To um, and Fred, I'm. It's been a real pleasure having you on my podcast and. Uh, uh, again, it's, it's going to be in February before it's out, but uh, you will be on my Facebook page sometime tomorrow oh. with your uh, with uh, your current photo, uh, which I haven't taken yet. I'm going to take that, and uh, with your Vietnam oh, yeah. photo. By the way, here's one that's sort of like me. Well, but, but I, you can take one. I'll take my, one. My, my, yeah, my, my yeah. parents will. So anyway, I want to thank everybody for listening, and God bless you. God bless the United States of America, and I will talk to you on the next podcast. <laughs>